Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius. Welcome back to the podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to be discussing solving the North Korea problem, or at least reining in or confining the North Korea problem. And this podcast is really a companion piece and accompaniment to the article that I last posted on my site, Fortress of the Mind, which talked about putting pressure on China as a means to curbing North Korean provocations. So we're going to expand on that in a podcast. I thought that this subject was a very, very important one, and I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about it orally, not just in writing. Because there's a lot of ignorance out there. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There is a lot of misperception out there about this issue. And as in so many other things, a lot of it just comes down to ignorance of history, ignorance of geography, ignorance about the motivations of the major players. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how it is that the United States can curb the ever-escalating provocations with nuclear testing, with missile firings of the North Korean regime in Pyongyang. How can this be done? And again, this is purely a matter of statecraft. We're approaching this subject not from a perspective of emotion or xenophobia or rampant nationalism. We're approaching this subject, this problem, purely from the vantage point of real politic, of hard-headed considerations about what works and what does not work in the international arena and what motivates great powers and what does not motivate them. So I wanted to offer my own assessments and opinion on this matter. Now, we all have followed the news. We know what's going on. We know that since the the elevation of uh, Kim Jong-un, the successor to his father, uh, Kim Jong-il, we know that he has embarked on a very, very ambitious series of nuclear tests and missile firings. And, all, and he's, he's done this for a number of reasons. A number of reasons. Number one, to shore up his legitimacy at home because he has no legitimacy. And the other reason he's doing it is to extract concessions from the West, from the United States and its allies. And yet another reason is he's being egged on by his patron, China. They're testing the waters. They're testing to see how far they can push. It's a brinksmanship game. It's a game that the North Koreans have practiced for many decades. But let's backtrack a little bit here and let's look at the realities. The reality, the inescapable fact that we first have to understand is that China is and always has been the chief patron of North Korea. During the Korean War, from 1950 to 1953, it was China who saved Kim Il-sung. It was China who intervened when he was getting smashed. It was China who propped him up with hundreds of thousands of men. It was China who expended the most blood in the conflict. It was China who endured decades of isolation as a result of its confrontation with the United States over this issue. So we can safely say that Korea matters a great deal to China. China historically has always seen 
the Korean Peninsula as its own appendage, its vassal state. It sees it as a projection from which to project power against Japan, against the South China Sea, against East, A East Asia in general. So the Chinese are, have, a, have a very, very, very strong interest in what goes on on the Korean Peninsula. Despite all the smiles and despite all the blandishments, despite all the uh, diplomatic niceties that they spew out about everyone must calm down and we must have negotiations, the reality is that China is also an up-and-coming power. China sees itself as the natural leader of Asia, period. And this is something that's not fully understood in the United States. Americans in general pay very little interest in foreign affairs until it's too late. But they need to start paying attention more because many of the people here have a very wrong-headed view of what China really is all about. There is a very, very strong nationalistic streak over there. The Chinese have a very, very strong xenophobic streak. They have a very strong nationalistic streak. They see themselves as the center of the world. They see themselves as the center of the world. That's the, what the Middle Kingdom means. And they deeply resent the... Uh, the presence of South Korea, which they see, like their buddies in Pyongyang, they see the South Koreans as a thorn in the side of their their designs for the future of Asia. And they want to dominate the region, and they are uh, they want to expel from East Asia any last vestige of Western powers of the United States, of any other Western power, which they see as a legacy of colonialism. Okay, You have to understand the mentality. You have to understand how the world looks from Beijing because it looks very different there than it looks from the capitals of Europe or from Washington or London or what have you. And again, so let's recap. The Korean War of the early 1950s, the Chinese expended vast amounts of blood and treasure to preserve a buffer state in North Korea. They want that buffer state there. If they can't expel the West completely from the Korean Peninsula, at least they want to preserve that buffer state. Okay, now they, they don't control everything that goes on in North Korea. I'm not saying that the Chinese have absolute... Uh, they just pick up a phone and they can dial into Pyongyang and they can call the shots. The Koreans are very independent, can be very, very prickly as a people. Uh, but at the same time, they know where their bread is buttered. China controls all of the fuel supplies that go into North Korea. They control all the utilities, all the, the electricity, all of the oil, uh, you know, what little economy that does exist there is entirely dependent on on the Chinese black market economy, more or less. So my point is, is that if they really wanted to put the screws to their neighbor to the south, if they really were offended by thermonuclear explosions going off, by missiles being fired across the ocean to Japan, if they really cared about these things, they would do something about it. They could do something about it if they really cared. But they don't care. Okay, that's the point. They don't care. They don't give a shit. Because if they did, 
care about offending the Japanese or the South Koreans. Why aren't the missiles landing in China? Why isn't uh, Kim Jong-un firing his missiles and having them land in Siberia? No, he's not doing that. He's, he's firing them at his enemies. And it's being done for several reasons. I think on a practical reason, it's being done to test, uh, to see what the air defenses in Japan are like. And luckily, the Japanese and the Americans have not taken the bait on that. They haven't, they haven't fired interceptors to bring down these missiles because that would give away the strength of the air defenses in Japan to the Russians and to the Chinese, which I don't think the United States wants to do at this point. So they haven't taken the bait on that. That's one good thing. But at the same time, you can't just ignore these types of provocations. You can't just sit back and say, oh, well, it's okay. It doesn't really matter. When you've got a state threatening to nuke you and bury your cities in fire, and um, it's you know, at some point you have to do something. You can't just let you can't just sit there and let yourself be ground to dust. Okay, so then the question becomes: Why is this happening? Is Kim Jong-un crazy? Does he really know what he's doing? Well, of course he's not crazy. Of course he's not. Of course he knows what he's doing. And it's my view that the hidden actor behind all of this is China. China is using North Korea, as always, as the pit bull with which to antagonize the West. They use him as their little puppet, their little tool to tweak the tail of the American tiger and to see what sort of reaction they can produce. And they're trying to demoralize the United States. China plays the long game. They're playing their long game. They want us out of Asia. They want to expel the United States from Asia. That, that needs to be understood. Okay, The very same motivation that the Japanese East Asia co-prosperity sphere had in the 1930s and early 40s, the Chinese have now. I will submit to you. I will submit that the, the motivation is exactly the same. Now, China is not uh, uh, yet, anyway, uh, invading anyone else, has not uh, undertaken an overtly militaristic posture. But that doesn't mean anything, because times have changed. No one really does things that way anymore. This is not the 1930s, where you have millions of men under arms, and you just send in armies. Warfare is not practiced in this way so much anymore. It's done in other ways. There's, it's a new generation of warfare where war is, is practiced in a fourth generation type of uh, method. It's done asymmetrically. It's done economically. It's done through media relations. It's done through propaganda. It's done through uh, all the nonviolent, quote unquote, methods. Now, this doesn't mean that war does not occasionally break out in violent means. It does all the time. We know that. But they're cunning. They know that they can't beat the United States in a face-to-face -face fight yet. They're not willing to take on the U.S. Navy at this point. Now, that may change in the future. But they're slowly trying to lay the groundwork, to play their little games, to evict the, foreign, the Western powers from East Asia. And you can see in everything they're doing with the Spratleys, with the South China Sea, with the, cultiva the cultivation of ties with all of the neighbors. So the question then becomes is how do we deal with this problem? How does the United States as a actor 
of real politic in the region respond? Well, it needs to make clear, number one, it needs to make very clear that it's not going to be thrown out of East Asia, period. Uh, we have trade relationships there. We have every right to be there, just like any other country. We have every right to trade, uh, just like uh, every country has a right to open markets in other parts of the world as well. So we have to make it clear that we're not going to be bullied or intimidated by threats. Okay, And if you want to keep the peace, you have to encourage a balance of power. Balance of power. And the problem is that the balance of power has been, since the end of the Second World War, it's been one-sided. It's been the United States pretty much calling the shots for everything there. That needs to change. Japan must be built up as a counterweight to China in the region. Japan has the capability of having a first-class military. I've seen it with my own eyes because I did join operations with the Japanese military in the early 90s. Okay? So I've, I, I know exactly what they're capable of. They're first rate. Uh, believe me. I mean, they were scary even then uh, when they wanted to be. And I can only imagine what they must have been like back in the, in the early 40s. So Japan needs to be encouraged to rearm and to acquire a first class navy, a first class army. Uh, and they're going to have to pay for it themselves. The, 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 the days of the free ride are over. And the same thing applies to Germany as well. I would say the same thing. It's time for these countries to step up to the plate. Free ride is over. The free rider, uh, uh, the post-war, where you just sit back and do nothing and you let the United States just take care of everything, those days are, are done. So time for you to step up to the plate, Japan. Time for you to step up to the plate, Germany. Time for you to do what you need to do. Okay? No excuses. And China needs to be counterbalanced with other powers in the region. And we talked about Japan. Well, Vietnam is, is also a, has a very, very respectable military tradition. The Vietnamese military is very, very good, as we know. And they're also very suspicious of the Chinese. Okay, They fought an extensive border war with China in, in 1979. And they really thrashed the Chinese in many ways. It's not very well known, but if you can you can research it, you can look it up. It's there, okay. And the Vietnamese are a, a very very capable military. They are, I think, an ideal. I think them, the Vietnamese, and the and uh, to a lesser, a much lesser extent, Thailand, are good counterweights to Chinese uh, economic expansion in uh, Southeast Asia, as well as Australia. So the Chinese dragon needs to know that if they want to play their games, then we can play at that game as well. Maybe Vietnam should start firing missiles near the Chinese coast and see how they like it. Hmm? That's an idea. If North Korea wants to start firing missiles, then Vietnam can start firing missiles. We can put missile defense uh, shields there and bases there and start tweaking the Chinese tail and see how they like it. We'll see how see how see where that goes. But more importantly, more importantly, if we want to change the behavior of North Korea, if we want to change the behavior of Pyongyang, the Chinese need to know that economic pressure is going to be put on them directly. Okay, we are if not their number one trading partner, one of their 
one of their major trading partners. We buy all their junk, all their garbage. And the, the, those, days, uh, the, those days need to come to an end. Okay, economic pressure needs to be put on China across the board. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of who, what, why, or how, because, well, let's just say I don't want to get into the specifics. But we have very capable, creative thinkers at the highest levels who know how to do things. And believe me, there are, are, there are a hundred ways they could exert economic leverage that really had bite against China. They could be labeled currency manipulators. They could be hit with tariffs. Uh, they've been playing all sorts of games for a long, long time. And the political leaders in America have been turning a blind eye to this because of the influence of the plutocrats in America who profit from this. That's, that's, I'll get to that next. But there are, there are tangible ways that economic screws can be put to the Chinese if they really need to. And it needs to happen, okay, despite all the whining and screaming that would take place. And my last point is we have to take steps to revive our manufacturing base completely. We have Part of the reason why we're in this situation is that we've been too dependent on China for cheap goods. We have, not when I say we, it's not, it's, this is not a decision that the public made. This was a decision that the plutocrats made in collusion with the political leaders. Leaders at the highest level of government for the past 30, 40 years deliberately set out to dismantle our manufacturing base and allow that job to be done overseas by slave labor in China or, or elsewhere. Okay, This bullshit needs to end. Okay, and I don't, I don't buy that goddamn bullshit about how well people don't want to pay enough here and we can't do it. And uh, you know, my answer to that is bullshit, bullshit. I know people who have started companies, who have started factories here in the Midwest, and they've done it uh, producing goods that are of the highest quality. And I'm talking clothing, bags, all this type of things that are that we consider to be produced by imports. Okay, it can be done, but we have to create an environment where this is encouraged, where this type of entrepreneurial spirit is encouraged rather than uh, penalized with repressive legislation and, and rules and, and laws that hamper people. We've got to get out of this mentality of entitlement and we've got to get back our entrepreneurial risk-taking Risk-taking needs to be encouraged. Risk-taking needs to be hailed as the paragon of business virtues. We need to do this, okay? Because we've lost these traits and we've lost this initiative. We have generations now of people that think they just want to get some slimy government job and sit on their asses and do nothing and they're owed a paycheck, okay? So that needs to end. And... You know, the specifics of how this gets done, that's up to the policymakers. All I'm saying is it can be done and it should be done. I don't buy the idea that it's impossible or it's hopeless or all this. Because anyone that says that is not aware of what can be done with good leadership. Good leadership inspired visionary leadership in the right situation and in the right circumstances can move mountains. It can do anything. All it takes is vision. All it takes is aggressiveness. All it takes is initiative. And these things can be done. 
So I don't believe when you say to me, oh, well, it's not possible. It'll never happen here. I say bullshit. Bullshit. It can be done. It can be done. And as I said, you know, in the article, I said, you know, despite my, de you can tell from this, my article, I, I have deep, deep suspicions of China and her intentions. But in the logic of statecraft, I can understand why they are the way they are, okay? And in some ways, you can't fault them for that. Because the world according to Beijing is very different from the world according to Washington, you know, who do I blame? I blame the, the ruling elites here. I blame us. It's our fault. Generation after generation of chicken shits and sellouts and cowards and wusses have destroyed our manufacturing base, have sapped us of our creative energy, and have put us in the situation where we're dependent on them. And this needs to end. And I quoted a passage from Ammianus Marcellinus, a 4th century Roman historian. And he said he was talking about the Roman ruling class, which could easily be applied to that uh, represented by the American ruling class today. He said, But the magnificent splendor of the assemblies is ruined by the worthless mediocrity of a few. They pay no mind to where they were born, act as if their vices gave them permission to do what they liked, and concern themselves with corruption and shameless behavior. For as the lyric poet Simonides used to say, they live happily. To live happily and be governed by reason, one should have, above all things, a glorious nation. Some of these people chase after statues, believing that a statue might allow them to live forever. They think that they can get greater benefits from some bronze shapes than from the awareness of virtuous and morally right conduct. When Cato was once asked why he alone, out of so many others, did not have a statue made in his name, he responded, I would prefer that good men should ask why I did not merit a statue. Then, which, which is worse, he should wonder why one was made for me. And so this is the ethic we have now. This is the ethic that we have now. The, and, and I've talked about this before at great length in previous podcasts on the plutocratic insurgency. And if you want to see those links, they're in the article from September 16th. You can click on those and you can review all that. But this is the reality and this is what needs to happen if we want to recover and maintain our position in East Asia. We've got to start putting the screws to China. China needs to, needs to know that we mean business. They need to know that retaliation is going to happen against them. And once that message is communicated, then all of a sudden they'll realize, hey, we better step in and control this puppet. Because uh, Pyongyang is, is immune to direct pressure from the United States as long as they are backed to the hilt by the Chinese. As long as they're enjoying the backing of their patron meaningful pressure cannot really be put on them. And this was the mistake. This was the mistake that all the previous negotiators made going back to the early 1990s when they started to explore these nuclear deals. They assumed that China was dealing in good faith. They assumed that North Korea was dealing in good faith. And they're not dealing in good faith. They want us out. They hate our guts, period. 
and they want us out. And that's the way it is. And you can either curl up in the fetal position and skedaddle home with your tail between your legs, or you can stand for something. You can do something. And that's the why I would say to the president, I would say, you better strap on your boots and you better do something. You better get in there and get off your goddamn slimy ass and do something and stand up for something. This is not a game. This is not a fucking joke. This is not, we're going to wheel in a tray of milk and cookies and make you feel good and we're going to coddle your insecurities. You have a job to do. And many men, far greater than you will ever be, have been able to do that job before you. So don't you disgrace us. You get in there and you fucking do something. Don't you disgrace us. Don't you let us down. Don't you disgrace that office that you were sworn to uphold. It's not a fucking joke. You get in there and you do something. And don't come back a loser. All right. That's enough for now. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.